You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So the book of Daniel, um, remember that book? I was, remember our introduction where there are plenty of people who don't like to place it five, six hundred BC because he was too accurate and that is their excuse. Nobody could predict this many things and have them actually come true. Therefore, it must have been written later as a history. Well, why do you say that? Because no one could do that. But why, why do you say that? Because we said so. That's their argument. So as we study the book of Daniel, we will be studying it, uh, understanding that it was written in the, in the 6th century BC, and it predicts times, it predicts things, it predicts happenings, it prophesies, and sometimes it jumps over great sweeps of time, but all of the pertinent necessary prophecies that are what we would require, if you will, to understand the end times are there, and it connects with the book of Revelation. And so we will be working our way through the book of Daniel, continuing to work our way through, using the um, grammatical historical method, understanding that God spoke to us in, in a reasonable way and that uh, we can understand his word. And, it, and you will find as we go through it and as we get to the prophetic parts, I won't necessarily have any great new revelations, although God did speak to me in a whisper last night. I laid out a fleece. And he told me, would you pick that thing up? It's making a mess on the floor. For those of you who missed, uh, I think Jim handed out his book, God Doesn't Whisper, like two or three weeks ago. Go ahead and read that and you correct me. We will read the book of Daniel chapter 2, the entire chapter this time, and then we'll have a little bit of a review. So chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. It's about page 1139. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare for me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, 
or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Can I stop there for just a second? Do you know how crazy it was for a 20-year-old man to contradict the king of Babylon's decree? Do you know how crazy it was for the king's executioner to follow that instruction? I wonder if God was involved. And I lost my place. Thank you. Verse 25. Then Arioch... Okay. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's present and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, Magicians nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me... This mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 
You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over all them, over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, and some of the kingdom will be, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as the iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush all and put an end to all these kingdoms, and it will it itself but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Then the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. I bet they loved that. And Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. What a tremendous chapter, both uh, incredible and terrifying. And it would have been so to this king, especially as Daniel would have interpreted it to him in that in that hour during his right after his dream. So. I'm going to go back away so we can kind of reconnect <laughs> with the in, in, informational portion of chapter 2. Before we get to the actual dream itself, we may or may not get to it today, but we'll try. Um, in every step throughout this entire process, God was setting it up so that Daniel would have the preeminence because Daniel did what with that preeminence? He deferred to God every time. When God answered his prayer for wisdom to interpret the dream, he didn't go out into the streets and shout, I figured it out. He praised God. He actually prayed a prayer, a psalm, if you will, of praise to God. And then he, um, when he went into the king, he made certain that the king knew that he didn't interpret this. God gave him the interpretation. 
that no wisdom of men could ever have come to these conclusions. And today, I think that's still true. I don't think that's still true. I know it's still true. <laughs> no wisdom of men can come to these conclusions without the, the work of God in their lives. And prophecy in the Old Testament was a work of Jehovah. It was a work of God. It was not a work of men. We call these men prophets, and so we should. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. But their prophetic utterances pale in the light of the fact that it was the God of heaven that revealed, chose to reveal through them things that were to come. He didn't have to do that. It's a wonderful thing that God did that in those days, in the three, the three epics that we see when prophecy went forward. And again, it will come in the latter days, but we aren't there yet. Although it looks like it, doesn't it? <laughs> Tell you what, we live in strange times. So, I just want to emphasize the fact that Daniel was a man of humble honor. He was a man who ascribed all the glory to God. He could have really furthered his career here. And he probably was smart enough to do it in such a way that the king would have never known that's what he was doing. Daniel never chose to do that. He always chose to elevate God, to bring God to the forward. So the decree goes forward to kill everybody because Nebuchadnezzar placed in front of his sorcerers and diviners and Chaldeans the impossible task of telling him what his dream was and then interpreting it. Tell me what I was thinking last night at 1030. Anybody here? I wish I could go. <laughs> no, I go to sleep late, so nice try. This is exactly what, this is essentially what was going on with the added fear factor that if you don't tell me, I can kill you. And everybody will agree that it was a good thing that I killed you. I should have killed you because you couldn't tell me what my dream, what my thoughts were. So that's what Daniel is being asked. That's what all the soothsayers are being asked. And rightly so. They said, we can't do that. How do you expect us to tell you what you were thinking? They didn't say it in that words, but they said it in so many words. And so the word gets back to Daniel that everybody's, all the soothsayers, all the wise men of Babylon are going to be killed because they've been proven unable to tell the king his dream and then tell him the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel carefully, he, he questions Arioch, what, why is this so urgent? Why is the king so urgent in this? And so the Arioch explains it to him. And then Daniel, um, he, he tells the king, the king's executioner, I was trying to come up with an analogy, but I couldn't come up with a good one. Uh, just, I mean, this is the guy that the king sends out to kill people. This is SEAL Team 6. And, and he tells SEAL Team 6, now, hold off on your orders. Don't, don't be killing people. Take me to the king. And SEAL Team 6 says, okay. <laughs> After they've been given instructions to kill everything that moved. So Daniel is taken to the king, and uh, but first he calls out to his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, to pray. And they pray, and between Daniel's prayer and their prayer, Daniel gets a vision in the night. And it's not just a dream, it's actually a different word. Remember we talked about that. It's a word that means a night vision, separate from a dream. And he, he is given the interpretation, both the dream and the interpretation. Now frankly... And I look at this from my perspective at my age. I don't know if I'd have remembered it all. I mean, if I could have gone into the king's chambers right then, and if I had my trusty little notebook so I could say, hang on, Lord. Okay, let me write this down. But, but, but God, God made Daniel remember. Think about this. All of this information precisely communicated to the king for one purpose, he said, so that the king would know what was to happen in the latter days, but for our blessing too. 
so that we can know that as well. Precisely communicated later on. So the the dream is revealed in a night vision, both the dream and the interpretation. Daniel immediately goes to praise, and he calls his his friends to praise and acknowledging that God is the revealer of secrets and God is the provider of what men need. Uh, Verse 23, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So then Daniel goes into to Arioch, SEAL Team 6, and he says, take me to the king, and I will declare the interpretation. So Arioch takes him to the king, and he makes sure the king knows, I found you, I found a guy, I know a guy. I know a guy who can do this for you. So he can be promoted as well. So he says, I know, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. So, and... He hurriedly brought Daniel. Remember that? That word implies alarm. Um, and I don't know what all was entailed in that alarm. Alarm that he was actually doing this against the king's orders. Alarm that, that there may have been the potential that some others were out, um, executing the king's orders in the literal sense. And uh, he wanted to get this stopped if Daniel could do this. So then the king says to Daniel, do you know what my dream was and can you interpret it for me? And Daniel says, he doesn't say, yes, I know, because God told me. No, he doesn't even word it that way. He says, he says, as for the mystery, which about what the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven. He draws, he draws Nebuchadnezzar's attention immediately away from men to God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, and he has made known to me, no to King Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't even place himself in the center as the person who brings the message. He leaves it, the path directly to God. And that is, that's a good in- indication for all of us. It is God who changes men's hearts. Nebuchadnezzar, to tell you what would take place in the last days, this was your dream and the vision in your mind while you were on your bed. So like I, I, I talked about, this was July 17th, July, uh, the week after, July 24th. Um, if Daniel had aspirations toward higher office, he just squished them all because he didn't, he didn't take to himself any glory, any ability, any power. He ascribed it all to God, and uh, God takes care of that. So Daniel's proclamation serves at least two objects, at least two, probably many more. Uh, for those of you who are studious, you probably have found them, but at least two. He was elevating Jehovah above anything Nebuchadnezzar had ever imagined, and he was also, by default, defending the other wise men, proclaiming to Nebuchadnezzar that they could not have been expected to know this. He agreed with those wise men. No one could have known this. Only the God of heaven could declare it. The God of heaven. Not Marduk, not the moon god, not the, the, the sun god, not all of your gods, only the true God. So in effect, Daniel declares God's sovereignty... Which, by the way, the theme of the book of Daniel, if there is a theme, it is the sovereignty of God. What a marvelous book that just comes back again and again and again to the fact that Jehovah God rules and reigns over everything that happens. Nothing escapes his view. There are plenty today, even in the Christian church, who think that God could have missed that. God doesn't miss anything. God is in charge of everything. So... (laughs) So then um, he, he declares God's sovereignty, 
And at the same time, he protects pagan seers from their own duplicity. They were liars. They were just, and I think we might have talked about this too. There were actually books written at this time of how to interpret dreams. And if the king, if the king says this, then you interpret it this way. And if he says this, well, then you interpret it this way. There were thousands upon thousands of pages or whatever the type of book Jim talked about, parchments and probably at that time, both parchments and some tablets as well, um, compiled to explain how to translate dreams. Because people would have been, I mean, you're eight, it hasn't changed today. We still, we still read books to interpret dreams. Oh my word. We don't. Yeah. I, the we was kind of a nice inclusive we that I shouldn't have done. Okay. I'm bad. <laughs> so in this, he was even taking a chance because he was clearly elevating Jehovah above all the Babylonian gods. He was fearless in promoting Jehovah. He was elevating Jehovah God above all the Babylonian gods. Normally that would get you a death sentence and they would pull you apart and send different parts of your body to different family members. And, and it was really awful. Um, and I won't get too more graphic, any more graphic than that. Um, all of the Babylonian gods remained impotent to translate, to interpret, to even know what the dream was. Commentators have fixed upon the phrase latter days. Some say that it is a statement after the fact by a spurious Daniel of the second century B.C., and that the statement has no messianic context. He has made known to Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the latter days, verse 28. <laughs> this would regard the latter days as stopping short of the coming of the Messiah as depicted in the New Testament. The implication is that each of the writers who use this term, which is used 14 times in the Old Testament, are using it only from their own personal perspective, and it, it depicts the latter days of their own visions of their own particular vision. And we, we dispensed with that using a number of biblical scriptures. Um, it might take me a minute to find my place here. Give me, bear with me. Oh, I always want to point at the screen. And maybe I should. Okay, so do you have to turn this? Yeah, it's on. Okay, I'm going to try all the buttons and see what happens. I'm going to hold one leg up and try it. Okay, that didn't work. Um, just, just the next. I just want to find out. We need to be on about 49. So here are some of the verses that... Uh, can you go back to 47? I'm sorry. 47, Peter. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, you've got a different numbering than mine. So, in the interest of confusion... What's that? Yeah. Okay, I'm getting kind of... There <laughs> we go. Then God, then God summoned his... Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. And then the messianic import is implied. Other uses are found in Hebrew, Hosea 3.5, Isaiah 2.2, 2, Micah 4.1, Jeremiah 48.47... Jeremiah 49, 39, but it will come about in the last days. I will restore the fortunes of Elam. Jeremiah 30, 24, in many cases, we'll see in the Old Testament, the latter days is referring to days to come. 
So again, from the first, in, the, in, in this particular case, Daniel is alluding to the establishment of the divine kingdom in the final years of the fourth kingdom, which is the revived Roman Empire. What Walvard says in his commentary here, as the sequel shows, it is similarly the period of the establishment of the divine kingdom, which is principally denoted by it in verses 34, 35, 44, and 45, which we will look at later in this chapter. But in the closing years of the fourth kingdom, May, it may all, may also, the closing years of the fourth kingdom may also well be included in it. Again, from the first use of this phrase in Genesis 49, messianic import is established in each. In each case, context determines the extent of that import. With regard to this section of scripture, context clearly shows messianic connection. One Old Testament scholar said it this way. He said, in this context, the expression must involve the eschatological future, the, um, prophes- the prophesied future, the future times future. That's what the eschatological would imply. For it concerns the final phase of the fourth empire and the coming kingdom of God. To tie this up, uh, Walvard says it this way in his commentary on Daniel. And this is quite extensive. Maybe it's the next one. Let's see what happens. Yeah, it's working now. Just had to have a start. You just had to start it. Yeah. The expression is found as early as Genesis 49, where Jacob predicted the future of his sons. The term is employed by Balaam in Numbers 24, 14, and by Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 30, and in 31, 29, in connection with the future of Israel. An examination of these prophecies indicates that the latter days include much that is now history, but with reference to the consummation in Messianic times. It was, let me stop there. It was not uncommon for prophets to use statements that included a sweep of history that included some things that have, for our, from our perspective, have already occurred, as well as some that are still to occur, which is what we see in Daniel. The prophecy that he gives in Daniel, much of it we're going to see has already been consummated. And it's remarkable. This is why it was so hard. It is so hard for false scholars to accept as prophecy. It's too accurate. So much of the prophecy has been completed. Much of it is still to come. That's not uncommon with Old Testament prophecy. Brian. You could call it a dual prophecy or um, uh, I, I was trying to think of a, uh, I've heard that term. Another word would just be a prophecy that is not complete and incomplete because of historical happenings. And I don't mean incomplete in any negative or pejorative sense, just that there's more to come. It's like, the second, fa- the, the second installment of the movie, if you will. So, an examination of these prophecies indicates that the latter days include much that is now history. But with reference to the consummation in Messianic times, Jeremiah used the number, used the expression a number of times to refer to the climax of the age relating to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 23.20, for those of you that might be taking these down, Jeremiah 23.20, 30.24, 4847 and 4939. Ezekiel identified the times of the invasion of Gog and Magog as in the latter days in Ezekiel 3816. The expression is also found in Hosea 3.5 and Micah 4.1 in reference to the Messianic age. On the basis of scriptural usage, it is clear that the latter days is an extended period of time regarded as the consummation of the prophetic purview involved in each instance. So in each instance, in each prophet's time, and what he was talking about 
It included some history that we now know has been completed and still includes history to come. History to come. Exciting times. Accordingly, Culver, uh, I, I commended him to you when we were last together as an insightful Old Testament um, scholar, um, who Robert Culver, who was a professor of systematic theology, and he wrote the commentary Daniel in the Latter Days. Um, any of you who weren't here then, if you would like that, I saved it on my hard drive. It's it's um it's not copyrighted. What do they call that? Uh, public domain. Thank you. Well, I'm having a brain lock today, so I can send it to you if you want it. Just let just send me an email or a text or or trip me in the hallway and tell me. Um, on the base of scriptural uses, it is clear that the latter days is an extended period of time regarding, uh, regarded as the consummation of the prophetic purview involved in each instant, each prophet's instance. <clears throat> Accordingly, Culver, Robert Culver's definition is accurate that the expression refers to the future of God's dealings with mankind as to be consummated and concluded historically in the times of the Messiah. He goes on to point out that expression always has in view the ultimate establishment of the messianic kingdom on earth, even though the latter days include events now history, such as the division of Israel and the promised land. On the basis of the usage of the basis of usage in the Old Testament, it can be concluded that the expression is larger than that of messianic times specifically, but that it always includes this element in its consummation. So it off, they, they include information that is larger than just messianic context, but it always includes messianic context in its expression. Does that make sense? We're talking about things that have happened, are continuing to happen, and will happen, but they refer to messianic context. They have messianic context. The Lord Jesus Christ is, is seen clearly or unclearly by some of these prophets in the future. The New Testament has many references to the latter days. I'm not going to go through them all. I think we went through most of them last time. Um, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Joel, which is a reference to Joel chapter 2, comes to mind. And then if anybody would like a list, I've got, there's just lists of time of, of New Testament verses that refer to the latter days. Um, for purposes of understanding this from the perspective of a Christian, recognize that we acknowledge that we are in the last days since when? Since Pentecost. So Paul thought he was in the last days because Paul was in the last days. Remember that the sweep of time that is so extensive and long to us is not even a blink in God's eyesight in God's perspective on time, because he is eternal. We must keep that in mind. Paul thought that Christ would come very soon. Augustine assumed that Christ would be back by 650 A.D. I don't remember. I, I searched and searched, but I couldn't find that he ever predicted a specific date, just that he thought he was going to be back by thus and such. One of the characteristics of an expectant, obedient, doctrine-driven believer is the idea that Christ could return at any time. Could he not? He is God. He could ret- he could work it so he could return. And you're all thinking, do it now so we don't have to listen to this. So this would have been the same view of an Old Testament believer. They would have looked forward to the coming of the Messiah at any time. 
As we get to this next section of Daniel, it will be profitable for us to review some definitions. And I want to review those definitions again. And then we will review them one more time next week or the next time I'm with you as we look into what an amillennialist, a premillennialist, and a postmillennialist all think about this. And we have to understand that there are good people in every camp. They're just wrong. Well, okay then, he said. So, in, 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 uh, earlier in, in the introduction to chapter 2, I gave us synoptic descriptions of each of the three major beliefs about the end times. So for our purposes going forward, um, a thorough understanding as much as possible of the definition of premillennialism is important. So this is the definition that occurs, that comes from Robert D. Culver's commentary, Daniel in the Latter Days. The millennium, let me see if I can find that for you. The millennium is specifically the period of time between the resurrection of the just and of the unjust and the period of Satan's imprisonment. Number two, the millennium is further qualified as an initial stage of the everlasting kingdom of Christ. The everlasting, isn't that a nice word? Kingdom of Christ. And a period begun by the visible return of Christ in glory to judge and rule the nations, a period closed by the final eradication of all evil from God's universe at the final judgment of the wicked, and, number four, a period during which the saints of the first resurrection will be associated with Christ in his reign. And number three, in connection with the inauguration or the ushering in of the millennium, it is revealed that, one, the closing days of the present age shall witness the restoration of Israel to the land and the conversion of the nation to be followed in the millennium by the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant promises distinctive to that nation. Not given to the church. Israel. The promises made to Israel will be received by Israel. Finalized, yes. The final personal Antichrist shall appear near the close of this present age who will become master of the world and will be destroyed by Christ at his coming and a period of great tribulation for Israel to transpire under Antichrist suppression from which deliverance will be provided by Christ at his coming. These are real events that will happen in real time and they are prophesied carefully. With that understanding, um, we continued on into Daniel chapter 2, and we looked at um, Daniel as he began to interpret the king's dream, and I, I do want to review this as well so that we don't go into verse 45 without at least some underpinnings. <coughs> so ver- let's look at verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Uh, so Daniel lets the king know that he's going to give him the information he desires, but he first reminds him that this information did not come from me. It did not come from Daniel. It came from God, who Daniel has now given a new name. His name is He Who Reveals Mysteries. I love the way they just, the, the, the prophets just gave God new names, and they're really appropriate names. He Who Reveals Mysteries. No one else can reveal mysteries. Unless, you know, you read the last page of the Agatha Christie, then you're the revealer, but that's not what I'm talking about. He who reveals mysteries. Daniel knew by God's revelation that the king had been wondering about the future. Daniel didn't know that. So the first thing the king would have thought, wow, did he know that? Oh, yeah, God. How did he even know that? That I was wondering about the future. I didn't tell Daniel. I didn't tell anybody. Maybe he told someone, but he didn't tell Daniel. 
He had just finished an unbelievably fast rise to power and had become the most powerful monarch in the ancient world. He controlled huge swaths of land. It was natural for him to wonder what came next. What's going to come after me? Solomon talked about the, the things that he had built up how they might be squandered by those who came after him. And you could never really know if what you passed on to your children and your children's children, if you were alive long enough to see, and your children's children's children, if they would maintain them or squander them. And Solomon talked about that. But as for me, Daniel says, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me. I didn't come to these conclusions by my own ability than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind and, beloved brothers and sisters, for us, for us, so we can read it and marvel at what God can do. Daniel continues his praise and elevation of Jehovah by declaring that no living person could have come up with this information on their own. It had to be revealed by God, yes. I do too, but I... I Yeah, uh, it was pointed out that he is, you don't think the king told anybody. And I do too, but I'm loath to make statements that I can't find directly supported. But I don't think he told anybody either. I think he just, that's a normal thing for kings to do. Normal thing for anybody in, in a position of great elevated power to do. Wonder what's coming next. What's coming next? Especially after the meteoric rise to power that he had. Amazing rise to power that he had. You know, people naturally wonder, what's this all, what's it all about? <laughs> And Daniel's going to tell him what it's all about. First is the, the, the revelation of the dream is twofold. First, it was to help the king understand what he was dreaming about. The second purpose will be revealed as we read on as to provide a record of the details of future world history, not just for the king, but for all of us. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And so we read about the statue, and I think I had a picture. Yeah. That's exactly what it looked like, though. God spoke to me last night. And told me to put this picture in here. Except that I put that picture in there about three months ago. So I'm lying to you. So it was an awesome statue. And then it has one, two, three, four, five varieties of uh, components. Five components. And we talked about the differences in those components. And we're going to run out of time for the review. So we're probably going to finish the review the next time we're together. And then plunge in to the prophecy, this big prophecy, one of the big prophecies in Daniel's book of the latter days. So it's most likely too evident by now to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel was being honest because he would not have had, he purposefully didn't tell anybody the dream. He purposefully required the soothsayers, diviners, sorcerers, and Chaldeans and wise men to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And so when Daniel started out, you saw a statue. I can't imagine probably the electric shock that went through Nebuchadnezzar. He really knows what he's talking about. That would have been exciting and I think a little bit frightening. That here stands just a humble, I don't know, 20, 18, 20-year-old young man, humble, who knew what I was thinking. Big brother. No, much bigger than big brother. So... He goes through, the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, verse 33, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then verse 34, you continued looking, 
O king. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze. There's some of the information about Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue that, that scholars over the centuries, over the millennia, the centuries, have um, extracted about the different types of um, features of each of the different parts of the statue. Gold was the most valuable, soft, self-contained unit, heavy, smallest, etc. I can send that to anybody that wants it. Um, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and then it says, verse 30, 25, 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the destruction of the statue at this point is complete. In this point in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel's interpretation of the dream is complete. And uh, <clears throat> that was the end of what we will I'm calling the introduction to the interpretation. Because verse 36 is where we turn to the interpretation. And we will look at that in uh, review next week and then move on to the actual meat, if you will, of the dream. Are there any questions before we close? Yes, Jeff. Um, okay, we will get to that. But, and I don't mean this snarkily, but millennium has in it kind of the definition. It's a thousand years, so Latin. Uh, well, yeah. You trying to steal my thunder there? <laughs> yeah, I will get to the definition. I've, I've got to look more. I've got to read some more as well. So I want to make sure I'm I'm communicating correctly. But it's a thousand year. It's a millennial reign. A thousand year reign. Uh, and I'm not sure. In your study, have you come to the conclusion that's exactly a thousand years? Yeah. Okay. What's that? 1,000 years. Uh, I don't know if Culver does, but, but my, interpreta- my interpretation, my understanding of the verse is that God used the word he intended to communicate. He knew a word for 200 years. He knew a word for 500 years. So it's my, my belief that it's 1,000 years. I, I'll look up and see what Culver comes to. I haven't actually checked on what he came to. Yes. Remember what his friends say a little later on when they're being threatened to be burned to death. He could deliver us if he wants to, and he may or he may not, but we will not bow down. Next question. (laughs) Except that that would have been me, snarky and smart aleck. They weren't smart aleck. They were respectful. We will not bow down. I don't know if it would have been me. I probably would have chickened out. No, Daniel was. it was pointed out that Daniel was confident because of his faith. He served the God of heaven. Can you imagine coming into the, to the audience of the king after having just been given this interpretation, this dream and this interpretation, and you knew it was right because it had been given to you by the Father? His confidence was born of his relationship and his understanding of Jehovah God. God is not a God. He's a God of wonders and a God of, a God of, um, a God of logic and a God of beauty and a God of divine care. 
And he was taking care of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I keep getting their Babylonian names prime. His confidence was in God. And as long as our confidence is in God, God can use us to do great things. Once our confidence becomes our own self-confidence, we're compromised. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.